The Legendarium Podcast is brought to you by, by you. So please visit patreon.com slash legendarium to, to support the show. But for now, welcome to The Legendarium. You know what I want you to do? I want you to describe just how hairy your are. <laughs> I'll beep that. <laughs> hey, the sad thing is I, I think they're not quite as bad. I think I shaved them a little while ago. Oh, That's right. Shaved my yeah, that's getting bleeped. <laughs> uh, okay, so before <laughs> just bleep. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast, episode number 192. This is The Lies of Locke Lamora, which is book number one of the Gentleman Bastard series uh, by Scott Lynch. So that's what we're going to be diving into today. But first, let's introduce our wonderful panel here. Well, he's more out of place than Curry at a Baptist potluck. It's Ryan Bruckman. I... Totally wasn't prepared for that. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like a walking, talking kidney stone. It's Kyle Lemon. Yeah, it hurts when I pee. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Make it hurt hurt when we pee. (laughs) Exactly. Let's not go down that road any further. So... (laughs) Uh, and you and you're certainly not a gentleman, but you're definitely a bastard. It's Craig, your host. Oh, nice, <laughs> nice. Is that what you prepared? Yeah. You, that was for Kyle. You. Kyle walked into the room today, and he's like, "Oh, I've got a good one." <laughs> so, I was happy about it. That was it. Um, I chortled on the drive over. That you know, was definitely a base hit. Yeah, <laughs> at least one. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, yes, indeed, I am Craig Hanks, your host. And uh, as always, find us on social media, the Twitters, the Facebooks, the stuff, whatever. Definitely find us on iTunes and leave a review. We actually made it over 100 reviews. Oh, very Uh, nice. So if you haven't seen that yet, you guys should go check it out. There are some good ones. I think actually, uh, Ryan, maybe you and I should do like a... um, We should Skype call because we live really far away from Mm -hmm. each other. So we can't do this more than once a week. But we should do a little Skype call and just riff on some of these uh, reviews that we got. Some of them are pretty good. They're good. Um, And throw that on YouTube or something. Uh, Anyway, but uh, so yes, go to iTunes, leave a review. We very, very much appreciate it. And it does help with our rankings there so that people can find us. And definitely, definitely head to Reddit where we are only about a dozen or so subscribers short of a thousand. Uh, so it, it, it's it's like all the other Reddit points; they're fake internet points. Uh, but I don't care; they they mean at least something psychologically to me. So I I want that thousand mark. Um, anyway, it's nice if you guys aren't spending. I'm talking to you two in the room. If you're not spending enough time on our Reddit, uh, sub our, our subreddit, you should, mm-hmm. because it's kind of like it it has achieved self awareness. Mm-hmm. You know, at the beginning, it, it was kind of like, yeah, I would I would personally start 95% of all threads on our subreddit. And, you know, we had a lot of interaction, but it was all me kind of doing that. And now it's like, I'm doing like 20% of them. It's awesome. So thank you, everybody, for the participation. Thelegendarium.reddit.com is where you can go join that conversation. I'm Obviously, sure you just admitted to being Jafu. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I started 95% of these things with my various aliases. That's uh, whatever. We don't want to talk about that. <laughs> uh, obviously, support the show on Patreon. Patreon.com slash legendarium if you feel uh, inclined to financially help us out a bit. 
Uh, and lastly, on this episode, please note there is a, uh, shall we say, a potential language warning. Um, I mean, the the book is, it's, it, the series is called The Gentleman Bastards. You can imagine what we're going to be getting into here. And so if you tend to listen to The Legendarium with kids in the car, first of all, shame on you because we've never been that family friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, especially, uh, for instance, I'll probably ask you guys what your favorite quotes are from the book. Mm-hmm. And those are going to get pretty filthy, I imagine. So, um Anyway, so yes, advisory on that. I think actually for this episode, I am going to give in. I will go and update our clean lyrics iTunes badge and just take that off because we won't deserve it anymore. And that's fine. Um, uh, Yeah, I'll probably... uh, Do you just want us to let one fly right now for a long time so you can just hold out a beep and just get it out of the way? um, You know what I want you to do? I want you to describe just how hairy your are. (laughs) I'll beep that. <laughs> hey, the sad thing is I, I think they're not quite as, as bad. I think I shaved them a little while ago. Oh, shame That's right. Shaved my f- Yeah, that's getting bleeped. <laughs> uh, okay. So before... <laughs> Just bleep it. <laughs> uh, okay. So first of all, you guys are awful. Okay. Putting in a mark to bleep that. All right, now, before we get to uh, Ken's recap, because Ken did give us a recap for this week, I have a very special treat for the two of you. Today, we are getting back into Craig's Not Lord of the Rings trivia. It is, uh, this is all Lies of Locke Lamora uh, based, but uh, here we go. So the two of you are going to be facing off against each other. Kyle was a speed reader for this one. Ryan read it a couple of months ago, I think. And so I think you're going to be evenly matched because you'll both equally suck. That's the uh, goal. At least by yep. the end of it. So, uh, But I'll start you off pretty easy. Are you guys ready? Mm-hmm. Okay, the first person to win is the winner. Uh, all right. The Gentleman Bastards... <laughs> Good move, Cotton. <laughs> wow. The Gentleman Bastards work in a city called... Camor. Nice. Uh, Kyle won. Camor is obviously based on which medieval European city? Venice. Kyle, too. Come on, Ryan. Ryan! <laughs> Get your head in the game. Uh, all right. The group are all technically priests of a nameless, heretical god of thieves, but they pretend to be priests of which god? Carlandro. Nice, mm. Ryan. In with a point. Uh, Locke is briefly betrothed to the daughter of Kappa Barsavi. Her name is? Rasha. Nazgul. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, that is that is accurate. Her name is Nazca, ah, so no points. Hey, half a point. The Gentleman <laughs> Bastards are tutored by Father Chains, who somewhat resembles which classic character from a Charles Dickens novel? Father Two Chains. No. Um, <laughs> oh, what's his name from Oliver? Uh, Oliver Twist, Oliver yeah. Oliver Twist. Um, I keep wanting to say Dickens, but that's not right. That's like Secret <laughs> Garden or something. You're thinking of the author, Charles Dickens. No, um, Fagin. Nice. Hey, that's, I'm actually pretty impressed with that one. Um, Musical theater. So, yeah, maybe we come back to Fagin. Maybe not. Whatever. Uh, all right. So it's two to two. The Kappa rules all illegal activity in Camor. But under the Kappa, each individual gang is led by somebody with what title? Garista. Garista. Very good. Uh, in his con targeting Don Salvara and his wife, 
Locke uses what alias? Lucas Fenright? Fairwright? Fairwhite. Fairwhite? Oh. Both Lucas of, Fairwhite. Both of you get no points, <laughs> which is the same as both of you getting one point. And may God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where I, I, this is, again, a tradition coming back from Craig's Lord of the Rings trivia. I don't keep track of points. Where are we at? Ryan, you have three. I have th- Three. And you have two. I think we're tied. I think we're tied. Tied at three. Okay. Uh, in a real heartbreaker of a scene, Bug is killed by an arrow, which hits him where? Neck. Nice. All right. That was it. Bugamir. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do have a couple bonus questions just to see if you guys can get these. Uh, Scott Lynch lives in what U.S. state? Washington. No. Minnesota. Hey, no. <laughs> Louisiana. It's in the he Midwest. Lives in, he lives in Wisconsin, but he was born in Minnesota, right across uh, the border in Minnesota. So, uh, hence the swearing, by the way. I think the, the northern kind of Midwesterners are pretty good at uh, cursing. So, I think that might be where his talent comes from. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, last bonus question, even though Ryan has run away now with the title, but uh, who narrated the audiobook? Frankly, I think this should be a, a, a well-known name at this point. His name is Michael Page. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, it, I only say that because he was so freaking good. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he apparently does a lot of uh, Stephen Erickson books, and mm-hmm. so we may run into him again in the future because I imagine we would get to some Erickson later. Yeah. Uh, not that he's on our current reading list, uh, but it's I imagine he will be. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I really liked Michael Page, but uh, but we'll get to all of that stuff in a moment. I think we ought to get to a recap. Now, Ken did send us a recap, and I think we should listen to that now. Uh, let's see what he's got for us today. Ken. It's rapid roundup time, and like Mitch Wilding Williams, I'm going to round up like my hair's on fire. The Lies of Locke Lamora follows a young orphan thief conveniently named Locke Lamora, whose very, very overly ambitious particular set of skills gets him in trouble and upsets the secret peace that exists between the City Watch and the thieving world. But his skill ultimately gets him sold into the prestigious thieves' guild known as the Gentleman Bastards, where his natural talent thrives. Imagine if Oliver Twist joins the Kingsman that becomes Robin Hood and you've pretty much got it. Thanks to some nice flashbacks, we learn what makes the Bastards tick. Turns out Locke is extremely talented but impulsive, and his first several years as a bastard are spent making up for a case of minor revenge that leaves many other orphan thieves with an unexpected case of deadness. Over the years, Locke and his friends undertake cons and heists so astonishing that Danny Ocean's crew would be jealous. Their long cons rely on the pride of their marks to maintain their secrecy, and things are going really well until our fun little heist caper takes a severe turn into full level one glory. Locke is strong-armed into impersonating an evil murderer which serves to get him beaten to a pulp and drown in a barrel of horse piss. From there, things happen that likely make Locke pine for the good old days of his horse urine nap. His entire crew is slaughtered by the Grey King's minions. Then the Grey King goes all red wedding and eliminates Copper Barsavi's entire family. After that, he changes his name to Copper Raza and assumes control of the town. Only one small problem for him, Locke and Jean survive and are about to go full Thorn of Camorra on his head. They mutilate and torture the freaky sorcerer with that awesome poison bird. Jean kills Copper Raza's twin murder sisters. Locke gets all conscientious and warns the town of imminent poisoning before rushing off to enact sweet, sweet revenge. No sword skill, no problem. He just needs to wait for Jean, or the fear of Jean, to put a knife in the 
back of Caparaza and Avenger's crew. Of course, Locke has been exposed as the Thorn of Camor, and all of their gold is at the bottom of the sea, and all their resources have been destroyed, but I have a feeling that the bastards will somehow rebound. So, do Locke and Jean head to another city and long con their way back to fortune? Do they use their skills at deception, camouflage, and misdirection to become vigilante private eyes? Because seriously, that would be awesome. How long until we get to see Sabatha again? What the heck is Locke's real name? I want to know. Alright, that's it for me. And as an old Kamori proverb has it, there are only three people in this life that you can never fool. Pawnbrokers, whores, and your mother. I'll let you three figure out who's whom. Har har, Ken. Har <laughs> freaking har. Um, all right. Well, thank you very much, Ken. So that's your recap in case you uh, haven't read it for a while or in case you just really don't care about spoilers or something. Um, anyway, before we do anything else with this book, I have to say I freaking loved it um, by the end. I, I wasn't sure the jury was still out for like the first half of the book, but by the time I was done with it, boy, oh boy, I was sold. Uh, Ryan, what did you think? I was the same way. I think it was uh, we were recording the last of our um, last series that we were doing, the King Killer Chronicles, and I'd been working through this. And I said, I'm just really struggling with this book at first. Kind of, and I, I wasn't buying in. I think it's about the 41% mark in uh, when you're reading on Kindle that all of a sudden, like I have, like now this book has a purpose. I, I'm driven forward, and from then on, I was sold through the rest of the series. Like I, I finished out. I love it. This is a this book especially. Um, by the time you finish, you look back and go, what did I just go through? Because it's it's very well guided to misguide you in what you're expecting. Oh, man, ain't that the truth? Yeah. Kyle, what did you think? Uh, I was like, kind of on the fence about it. I actually really liked it when you had the flashback uh, scenes where yep. it was like young Locke and he mm -hmm. gets sold and, and all of that. And I was bought into that. And every time it would jump into the into the... Uh, regular story like the present day story I kind of slowed down a little bit and similar to you guys after I don't know 30-40% when you started to understand a little bit what the con was going to be and got your head around a couple of the characters then I could buy into the whole thing but I was actually reading through those wanting to get back to the young Locke story because I, I like that a little bit more I really like the dynamic with uh father chains, chains and yeah. i really liked the whole idea of shades hill and the like band of thieves and orphans and i thought it was really really cool yeah i uh so i tend to use whisper sync here is your free plug lord bezos um <laughs> yeah i use whisper sync which means i i can switch seamlessly between an audible narration and the electronic copy of the the actual book um and so i started this one uh, listening and <laughs> very nice <laughs> uh i started this one listening and i was out for a walk one night i was like all right let's get started on lies of lock more i turned it on and uh this guy whose name again i've already forgotten it. how sad is that um michael page he starts the narration and it starts with uh father chains and the thief maker having mm -hmm. a conversation about Locke. And the way that he did both of those characters, oh my goodness gracious, I was in. Mm -hmm. I loved his performance. And it really brought those two characters to life. So I, I can't say exactly what my experience would have been otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, but while the first half of the book or so did end up feeling a little bit slow, I was grabbed right at the very beginning by that conversation in that uh, that 
prologue. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really liked both of those characters. Father Chains especially is, um, he's a fun one. Mm-hmm. Boy, what a character. Uh, yeah, really enjoyed him. But let's talk, speaking about Father Chains, uh, he is, he tutors the boys, not just in thieving and conning, but also in swearing. I was going to say, he actually doesn't even tutor them in thieving or conning. Like, not all that much. What he teaches them to do is all of these extracurricular things. Well. Um, so they can pass off as right. whatever they need Exactly. To he teaches them to act, which yeah. is which, what which conning I thought, is. Which, but what I thought, well, yeah, I mean, I guess conning, that's fair. But I thought it was really interesting that he doesn't teach them to be thieves necessarily. Oh no, he's got that covered with the collection pot outside, mm-hmm. right? He doesn't need he doesn't need loose change. Yeah, because he... yeah, I thought it was a really important distinction between what Father Chains is doing and what the thief maker is doing. Mm-hmm. Like very different approaches mm-hmm. at such a larger scale for oh, what yeah, Father no, Chains what Father Change is doing. Certainly so. makes for a more interesting story than mm-hmm. just pickpockets. Uh, but but I, I want to talk about the swearing, Kyle. Okay. So I want to talk. Okay. So let's talk about. Okay. It. Uh, Do it. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Father Chains has a mouth on him. Yes, he does. And I love it. A, yeah. A heavily swearing priest is always a good good choice. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, maybe now would be a good time as we're getting into that sort of thing to just say, uh, I love the concept of the the nameless 13th, uh-huh. this, uh, this god that they serve. And the fact that, um, you know, you would think that all of these people who are funny and witty and worldly and they're thieves and they're potty mouse and whatnot that they wouldn't take religion seriously mm-hmm. and they do it, it they do it's um really interesting that you know obviously okay by this point you should know spoiler alert but by the end of the book when uh, uh when Locke has caused that boat to be sunk with a fortune and it was a mm-hmm. death offering it's one of those things where it's like it's not brought up all that often, but these really are priests of the thirteenth nameless god. Locke um, is a priest. Locke is a priest. The Locke others aren't. They're not. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, um, so yeah, I really like that, and and it fits with this idea of they take it really seriously, but because it is this nameless thirteenth god who is uh, a god of thieves and the, the under crooked warden, the crooked warden. Thank you. That's what they usually call him. Um, but because of that, it gives them license to be the most foul-mouthed people around. Uh, and they're fantastic at it. Now, this is something that when when I hadn't read the book and people are recommending it, they're saying, this is great, you got to read it. It almost always came with the warning or the caveat. Now, heads up, there's a lot of swearing in this book. Mm-hmm. You, need to, you need to be prepared for that. And now that I'm done with the book, I'm going, well, yeah, I mean, they're swearing in the book, but it didn't seem all that crazy. I mean, I I guess it, among epic fantasy, the in the epic fantasy genre, maybe this is more than we're used to. Um, but I guess I've read enough, you know, Michael Crichton or whatever generic thrillers or the entire, oh, I hate this phrase, literary fiction genre, like, this this is nothing, not nothing, but it's, it's. But the thing is, it's it's well, well within. It, it fits within the characters. It fits within their world, and it doesn't. I. It's. It, yeah. It, there's a lot by sheer quantity. There's a lot of cussing in this, and they use some some of the heavier, more, uh, the less uh, polite polite terms, I guess. <laughs> um, 
And so if you do have a any sort of qualms about language, yeah, you're going to have a problem with this. Well, yeah, one of the things we, you and I were talking about earlier, Craig, was it's a lot more colorful than it is. I mean, there's there's still a lot of cussing in the traditional sense, but it's mm-hmm. the language that's used is so colorful that sometimes what wouldn't ordinarily be taken as an offensive term or something like that feels really gritty and dirty by the way that he's imagined these like right 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 uh or the opposite i might argue that the opposite is sometimes the case where he he's using whatever four-letter words that we're not supposed to use in english but um he uses them in such imaginative and colorful and fun ways that it's totally excusable in my book mm-hmm. you <laughs> laugh for you laugh first and then you go oh, and then yeah. you go oh maybe i shouldn't laugh no i'm good i let's just have fun with it uh what was the the one that you used in our in the last episode eat we did eat hemp. i invite you to eat hemp and shit rope <laughs> that's fantastic um stuff like that where you know it's it's almost poetic in its uh usage of profanity so i wanted to know what you guys thought of or what you guys thought of your favorite uh lines your favorite um the favorite of the cursing yeah yeah or either i mean we can talk about his pros in general but i do want to know what your favorite curse was so once you understand who these characters are and that they let their mouths run at times when they shouldn't one of my favorites is actually very short they come in they see the bonds major the falconer yeah, um, with his uh, his scorpion hawk, which, um, and he just looks it up and he goes and goes, nice bird, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which I, is, and again, it, it like you were saying, it fits with the characters. It works partly because you know who Locke is, and and he just gotten done with this whole um, uh, exposition about how you don't treat a bonds mage this way. Yeah, you, these people... you bow and you scrape and you hope that you don't get on their bad side. And this is what this is how Locke they destroyed him. a kingdom because the kingdom killed one of theirs, like right. an entire kingdom. Like that's how powerful these people are, and they can do so much. And you just walk up, nice bird, asshole. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, Kyle, did you have one? Yeah, it's pretty early on. Uh, so it's like when we first kind of meet Jean, and he's sitting there eating an apple, and uh, he eats the whole core. And Locke says, Locke says, creeping shits, man. <laughs> Locke Lamora stuck out his tongue. Must you do that? Uh, you know, the black alchemists make fish poison from the seeds of those damn things. And then John just says, lucky me not being a fish. <laughs> and so I just, <laughs> that whole exchange was just fantastic. Uh, and yeah. yeah. My favorite one was uh, uh, when you don't know everything that you could know, it's a fine time to shut your f- noisemaker and be polite (laughs) (laughs) love stuff like that uh okay so now that we've got that out of the way um anything else you guys want to say about the swearing i mean i guess it i guess the caveat that people give isn't outrageous or anything because it's it is a little bit Mm -hmm. uh odd for the epic fantasy genre um so you know i'm not saying people shouldn't give it i'm just saying it didn't bother me and i could just be completely desensitized i will i will admit that my mouth on the podcast is much cleaner than uh normal it's just it's all about your audience knowing the audience if you're recommending the series yeah know your audience okay Mm -hmm. good one uh okay so let's talk about the structure of the book kyle you already mentioned and we've already talked a little bit about the the um 
the past versus the present mm-hmm. and then that structure. Um, he's constantly through the first half of the book, especially jumping between the two halves. Um, and by the end of the book or in the second half, when the present day narrative really starts to speed up, it really starts to gain a head of steam that stuff from the past kind of takes a backseat. Mm-hmm. We'll go back to it every once in a while, but uh, for the most part, he just takes his A storyline and goes with it mm-hmm. in the second half. Uh, how did you guys feel about it? Was it distracting? Did this contribute, Ryan, to maybe you're struggling to get into the book? At the um, beginning, yes. Um, the bouncing chronology kind of frustrated me a little bit, um, mainly because this is a storytelling tactic that is used uh, frequently to try and keep your audience in the dark about something. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a um, the TV series Arrow, when it first started out, was they were egregiously bad about this because they would bounce back to his time on the island Mm -hmm. and here and then back to his current story. And you wouldn't learn about how he knows how to solve the problem until you like two minutes before he has to face the problem. And I was like, I don't want to read a whole book and get to the second to last chapter and be told he, this is how he knows how to fix this problem. And then he fixes that problem here. Cause even if it's not, it feels like a deus ex machina. Yep. Right. Yep. And I don't, and I did not want that. Um, so once we hit a certain point where I had, where we had the story of the gray King, where we had, um, uh, the, the main plot line laid out and it wasn't so much about bouncing back and forth. I, I, I appreciated it more. And then all of the back and forth pays off later on when we get to the end and you have those moments where you see the connection lock is built with Jean with these other people in the past, how Jean has become the fighter he's become and, and you know, when he just pulls the exact same thing that he did earlier, um, where he's just holding the breaking, I don't have to, I don't have to beat you. I just have to keep you here until Jean arrives. Mm-hmm. Right. Here comes Jean. That callback, that scene, like I, I was like and on that's, the verge of tears. Oh, it's fantastic. Like, yes. It's, and that, I think that's really effective because it was introduced so early in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it was, when the scene as children is brought up, it's more just, kind of flavor than anything you're like oh this is what they were like as kids and oh jean knew how to fight etc cetera, etc cetera. it shows Locke's resilient the fact that he knows that his greatest skill probably in is this his is, brain. His, is his brain and to be able to just take the beating right mm-hmm. um and so if that scene of them as kids had been right before the scene with him and caparaza mm-hmm. it would have completely derailed the yeah, emotional it, momentum it take, of it yeah, right it takes away the whole climax of that other scene. But there, I mean, there are times though, when he does in a more miniature way, I mean, that's the big climax of the book, but in a more miniature way, he does kind of do that, especially with the interludes. Um, There are little interludes with an omniscient narrator who just kind of tells you a bit about the history of Kamor or this or that Royal family or whatever. Um, I love those bits, by the way, those are some of my favorites. I love a good omniscient narrator. And I miss them, but um, uh, but there were times when he would give you that piece of information because oh, this next chapter just won't make any sense unless you know this, and I didn't really yeah. have a way to fit it in with the actual story. So here you go. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so even if they were some of my favorite parts to read, I kind of recognize that uh, it's a little bit shoehorned in this mm-hmm. this info. That's. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that, not like it's a big sin or anything, but I like that it wasn't. Uh, I mean, we've talked about tropey tropes in the fantasy genre a lot, and I like that it didn't follow the same uh, 
st- you know, it didn't stick with the young Locke the entire time mm-hmm. and build all the way up through there. Um, and I liked that it jumped back and forth. I thought it was a really good way to character build. And it was also interesting because he's definitely world building here, but he's not like you're not diving into magic systems and things like that really at all. Um, and so it didn't feel as complex, even though it was incredibly complex. But I think jumping back and forth allowed for that to feel a little bit less like here, I'm just going to hit you with a ton of information about Kamor and the way that the gangs like basically run the city. And it felt very natural back and forth. Well, one of the nice things about doing this setup along those lines is the fact that when you show where it starts and where they are now, as a reader, you can kind of, you start to fill in the gaps naturally without mm-hmm. him having to write anything. Mm-hmm. So when you're back with young Locke and dealing with Nazca and his in relationship with her and then seeing them together like or later on in the book, so you go, okay, obviously they build a relationship. I don't need to read everything that happens, but I know that they build a relationship that actually mm-hmm. matters. Um, but it's not a romantic relationship because we've got this other character, Sabatha, that we haven't really met that we mm-hmm. know Locke is obsessed with and that sits here over your head the whole time waiting for like, okay, you put this here right at the beginning. When is she coming in? And then she never comes in in the book. Yep. That's yeah. That was really interesting to me. Speaking of how he's structuring the story, because it's obvious that he has a trilogy in mind, you know, before ever publishing this book or at least a series. I don't know what mm-hmm. he, whatever. Um, but the Sabbath thing was, was one thing by the end of the book. I was like, wait a minute, where's that chick? I, <laughs> Chekhov's gun is still loaded somewhere. Right, exactly. (laughs) Um, And, uh, oh, the other one. Oh, yeah, the other one I was going to mention is Father Chains. So it's clear in the present-day narrative that Father Chains is dead, and we don't know why or how. Um, And I was really looking forward to a resolution of that, and we didn't get it. Uh, Were you okay with that, Kyle? I just kind of chalked it up to he's old, and he's a thief, so perks the job i don't know i mean i figure you're you're fast forwarding however many years from the the pre-story which is young Locke and father chains to wherever we are now i kind of just toss it up to i'm sure think, something happened well, something uh, interesting happened but i i'm okay with putting that aside just the, because it could easily be uh the only older. reason why i i'm on the same i'm in the same boat with you in the sense of that i just kind of figured he was old and passed on because they never mention any sort of story or anything. It's just like chains is gone, you know, uh-huh. but and they never say chains. You remember the day that chains got hung or do you remember like whatever? Right. They're just saying chains is gone. So it's mm-hmm. like, okay, it's, it's probably just the passing of time that took him, mm-hmm. you know, or based on the time frame, some disease or whatever. Mm-hmm. Got That's, I, I just feel like that can't be the case. And I, I know you've read ahead, Ryan, but, but, uh, I want something more for Father Chains. I like, like I don't want him to yeah. just disappear. And I think that there could be, and I like that. It, I like how it's handled in this book because I think instinctively, I do what Ryan and I are talking about. I think, oh, passing of time and Father Chains is gone, but that doesn't mean that they can't bring that up at a certain at a certain point mm-hmm. later in the story where something gets revealed to Jean and and Locke that actually he didn't just die the way that you thought he died. Here's what happened, and it kicks off this whole new. You know, because they they are so loyal to their gentleman bastards crew. Um, I mean, you see that with when Bug goes down and and the twins go down and they sink the ship with all the treasure as kind of an om- or as like a an offering offering for them. 
Um, Which that reveal, as soon as I figured out why, what was happening with that, like I, that, that was another <laughs> moment where I was kind of tearing up a little bit. Like, oh my gosh, yeah, he's like, this is a, this is his offering that he's been that was established at the beginning of the book, and mm -hmm. then we haven't really mentioned again until now. And it's uh, and I remember thinking when he first got it, like how big that was. I was like, good heavens, how's he's how's he supposed to manage that? You know, picking pockets and doing stuff, but just yep. turns out he had something in mind. Um, I will say last thing on the, the father chains thing. Um, I, w I wasn't sure at the end of the book, how I felt about it being unfinished. I was like, Oh, you know, maybe we can learn more in later books and that's okay. But I, um, I think it actually works really well structurally just because it, it's possible that he wrote a really great ending for father chains, you know, dies in a blaze of glory or something, but that would have come at, at or near the end of the book. And there's such a climax in the present day storyline that it would have been kind of overshadowed. Yeah, it, it would have been uh, overcrowded at least. Yeah, in the end of the book. So I mean, I haven't I haven't read along or read further. I wouldn't be surprised if one of our flashback narratives in the next book or following book is some kind of like meet up at Father Chains's funeral, talking about what happens. Or it seems <laughs> like a very natural, right? Very natural way to segue. Yeah. Um, all right, so I've got uh, plenty more stuff that I want to bring up. Did you guys have any notes you want to talk about? Well, we we have to cover the bromance in this story. Between, the bromance between John and um, Locke, because they are they are another Frodo and Sam. <laughs> they are it's I, their relationship is one of the core reasons why I immediately, as soon as I finished one book, started downloading the next and just jumping right into it. It's because those two, uh, the their connection and their driver. I I never worry about them. How do I say? How do I phrase that? I never worry about them. Their relationship becoming tedious. They genuinely care about each other and m more about the other than themselves. And that's something that a redeeming factor to thieves in this. I mean, generally, it's there's no honor among thieves in these. Even you know if they're if they're a, if they're a bad guy that, you know, they're, they're willing to sell someone out. These two guys and the gentleman ambassadors as a whole are so loyal um, that it shows a redeeming quality uh, that you can attach to. And it's what makes that end sequence when he caught, when he fakes that Jean is there is what makes his sacrifice at the end where he's willing to, you know, to die for, to die at the end, to keep Jean from going, you know, or, you know, to, I, I value that sort of relationship a lot in this. And it's so good in this book that I hope that it's one of those things that I I appreciate then if they can maintain that the entire series. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, what do you make of that? The idea that, um, that the gentleman bastards are so loyal and, and loving toward each other when, you know, the... the other thieving gangs, the uh, stereotype, like you said, is that there's no honor among thieves and every man for himself, et cetera, et cetera. Um, why do you suppose they are more loyal to each other? One, because of Father Chains and what he's instilled in them. And because but he, what is that? It's the sense of something, of being something bigger than just thieves. Um, he, he tells them uh, one of the things he... And I really hope I'm in the right book. Um, he tells Locke, <laughs> "Careful." Yeah. He well, he tells Locke. He says, "Have you figured out what what you are? Like what 
you and Jean and and the and the twins and everything, you're a you're an you're an effing ballista bolt into the secret piece. Oh right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says that, and so their purpose is it's not just being thieves. It's it's you are going to be something so much bigger, and because of that, be, that sense of uh, being part of something bigger, that community, I think, is something that Father Chains instills in them, which allows them to make that connection that others may not have so much. As a whole, the thieving community in Camor is actually pretty stable. Uh, very Italian, for lack of a better term, stereotypical Italian movie family, <laughs> mafia family type thing. You know, they they call it the it's they're called the right people, right? Um, and they do help each other out, but the gentlemen bastards are the only ones that I think have that full sense of loyalty to each other outside of uh, family blood, because. Kappa Barsavi and his family and everything like that. He's very protective of, of them, but um, I, it's something about what Chains does with his gang that makes them unique. I think it's got to be chalked up to two things. Um, the devotion to the Nameless 13th. What, what, is it, what do they keep calling him? The Crooked Warden. The Crooked Warden. The man who puts his finger on the scale when we are weighed at the right. end of our... Right. So... Um, they aren't just, it seems to me that the other thieving crews, the other people uh, in the Camor underground know who this 13th is, this crooked warden, but they don't really seem to uh, be as devoted as Father Chains and Locke and the rest. So first of all, they have something uh, to be attached to, something greater than themselves. And then second of all, maybe because, largely because of that, um, the object of their thieving is not the loot. Mm-hmm. And so when they, they keep doing all these jobs and ripping off the, the what do they call them? The uh, peers, the peers of Kamor. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what do they do with all the money? Well, it sits in this basement and they do nothing with it except finance their next job, right? Mm-hmm. And so this idea of uh, lack of greed, which normally would be pretty hard for me to swallow um and even now i'm like okay well uh, willing suspension of disbelief they're not greedy sure whatever but it's easier to suspend my disbelief of that because they have the crooked warden to look to um, and that devotion to something higher Mm -hmm. than themselves even if it's something that you know as the crooked warden hardly what we would consider a a wonderful god to pray to but uh, still well, it's there's, also, there's also the sense of when you have so much, making more loot, like they have 40,000 crowns crowns in there. And by the time you figure out their monetary system, which is one of one small complaint I have about this is I can never know how much money they have in anything because the monetary system, I just know a crown me is a lot. Right. And everything else is less. I got to say... Well, actually, okay, sorry. Go on with your point. But the point being, when you have, when they have forty thousand crowns sitting in a basement, they can, they could retire, they could do whatever they wanted to, if that was their goal. It's there's not a need for more other than the thrill of the game, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, that's that's why the greed factor doesn't matter to me because they, it's not the money they want. They've already got all that. They're right. fine. It's it's to prove you are, it's to prove you are the best, and to prove, and to be. To be the most overlooked group in all of the thieving crews in Kappa Barsavi's kingdom, because they have mo- they have more money than Kappa Barsavi does most likely, 
um, right, because of, certainly, and they are breaking his secret piece to do it. If they, if Kappa Barsavi finds out about the cons they've been pulling on the protected class, like yeah, they're screwed. They're screwed. This that's a big factor in this book. Yeah, and I think I think the uh, connection we were talking about why they're so loyal, it's it's demonstrated in like really early on when Locke first is purchased by Father Chains, and it talks about he tells. Uh, lock their whole approach to thieving. Uh, And I've got a quote here. It says, so this is Father Chains talking to him. He says, the entire city of Kamor is full of idiots running around and getting hung, all because they think that stealing is something that you do with your hands. Uh, And then to paraphrase, deception and misdirection are are our tools. Uh, We don't believe in hard work when a false face and a good line of bullshit can do so much more. And I think the idea that like, they take on these jobs, they take their their craft to another almost intellectual, spiritual level because they are going towards that 13 God, you know, kind of thing. Uh, that is where they have that connection. They wouldn't be, re- like, Father Chains wouldn't be recruiting members of the Gentleman Bastards that couldn't handle that level of loyalty and devotion. And I thought it was really cool that that was something that he revealed, like, almost in the very first pages. I agree. Um, And now, because I don't have anything to add to that, because I just agree. Yeah. Now I want to talk about currency again. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, And and partly I want to talk about currency because I want to move into uh, another strength of the book. Uh, Ryan, you said it kind of frustrated you that you never quite got a handle on exactly how the currency worked. Um, and I got to say, by the end of the book, when he, or even by the middle of the book, when he hadn't even bothered to explain any of that, I was kind of relieved, honestly, mm-hmm. uh, because I'm used to series now uh, or worlds that uh, the authors create and they feel like, okay, I've got to flesh out every little thing in order for the world to be believable. Um, and that just wasn't the case here. No, uh, not at all. At all. And so, and so it goes beyond the currency and, and to other stuff as well, where he just lets you kind of make connections or not. And he just moves on with the story. He's, he's got a story to tell. He's not going to uh, inflate it to Jordan-esque levels with his detail. Um, and and I, I really appreciated that, that he just kind of kept the story moving. Um, and so, and I think the... Uh, the money was emblematic of that. I usually, and the the truth is usually I hate the chapters in fantasy books where it's like 15 silvers equals one gold talent. And one oh, the, talent uh, equals... Harry Potter is a terrible example of this. Yeah. When they go through and they do that, normally I hate that, but I, I, I need a rep, a point of reference. And eventually I get like, I get enough mm-hmm. to be able to decide. Like I said, like, like I said earlier, a crown is a lot everything else is less like I, that's enough to go on to say they have a good chunk of money, but I don't, I don't have a reference point for 40,000 crowns means what? Yeah, I guess um, what I, what I used as my reference point and maybe the reason it wasn't very frustrating for me was because early on when they, they're starting the Don Salvara game um, and they get him to commit to up to 25,000 crowns. And this is over, well over half his fortune, apparently. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe we assume that his fortune is between thirty-five and 40,000 crowns. And so if that's 
one of the, you know, maybe a, a mid-level noble in Kamor, that gives me a reference point that I can think mm -hmm. of today. He's no Lord Bezos, yeah. uh, but, you know, but maybe he's the CEO. We gotta take, we gotta take something the on the lower end of the S&P 500. Figure out our who the third, who the twelve gods and the third and the unnamed thirteenth is of our of our um, <laughs> tech and you know business. Oh yeah, of yeah, yeah, the, you know, yeah, yeah. Bezos uh, and Cook, Cook and yeah. those groups. Um, you, that's your assignment for the next episode. Okay. <laughs> um, well, that but they they would be more like the ruling class, not the gods, right? I don't know. You cross a business over a trillion, you might you might be able to buy godhood. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I I want to go back to something you started talking about, Ryan, and that's uh, Jean and Locke um, and their bromance. Mm -hmm. But I want to go a different direction. Okay. Uh, because when I realized that the character's first name, our main character's first name is Locke, I wasn't sure exactly what the title was referring to, but then you start the book and it's like, okay, that's our main character, Locke Lamora. Um well, his first name is Locke, L-O-C-K-E. Mm -hmm. And my first thought was, is he naming this after the, uh, what was he, a 17th century English philosopher? John Locke? Mm -hmm. And then he introduces his best friend. His name is Jean. I'm like, oh, that can't be a coincidence, right? It's mm -hmm. got to have something to do with uh, John Locke. And I don't know. So John Locke, the the problem is so he's often called the father of liberalism uh he's like the a huge figure in the enlightenment mm -hmm. um and then there's also a bit uh where in one of the interludes um scott lynch he quotes jean-jacques rousseau who is kind of the opposite of john locke mm -hmm. in enlightenment terms and i'm like oh, okay there are too many connections now this can't be a coincidence but the problem is that Locke, in this story, he's not running around spouting Lockean enlightenment, you know, philosophical principles the whole time. Right. And so I couldn't quite see the connection, but I'm like, there's too much here for me to just say that he's, uh, that he's nothing. Anyway, uh, did you guys think about this or do I read too much? You read too much. Okay. Um, but the other thing is I, I would be interested to, if there's any way you could, we can like, Get a, uh, toss get, a few questions. Get Scott Lynch on, yeah. just to say, hey, we were curious about the names you chose for these because that's the other thing is naming. Naming actually has a there's an art. Uh, well, not just an art to the, in authorship, but in this book series, the Bonds Magi oh, sure. use names mm, as yeah. a way of controlling and things like that. And so the name Locke and the name Jean, like those, they they come into play. Um, I'm just I I would be curious to know if that was something that he that he took about into account when he was doing that or if he if purely an amazing coincidence um do you remember uh way back years ago when the Al alloy of law was coming out sanderson was continuing his misborn series and uh and it turns out the two main characters names are wax and wayne mm -hmm. and the fantasy world collectively rolled its eyes so hard that you know it, the earth spun on its axis yes. et cetera, et cetera. um there was a lesser moment in this when they finally he finally brings the two characters together and it's lock and chains. I was like, oh gosh. Uh it was a very minor version of that, but I was like, are you just you're just screwing around now, aren't you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um anyway, so that's that's all I want to bring up. I don't know. I I'll be on the lookout for more uh Lockean 
principles coming out of our main character. I'm not sure if I'm going to find any. It could honestly just be that I am not familiar enough with John Locke to recognize that, you know, maybe Lynch is doing something really clever here. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm just not, I, I'm too absorbed in the story to pay attention to, you know, what our main character is actually doing or saying. That could be the case. But anyway, um, let's let's talk about the rest of the gang. So we've talked about Jean, we've talked about Locke and their bromance, which I love. Um, the other characters, did you love them enough? Did you care about them enough to have the same kind of gut wrench that I did when we get to the scene in the basement? He arrives, the Sansa twins, are uh, their throats are slit, and then Bug gets murdered in that basement. Uh, and boy, that was kind of, it wasn't the turning point because the barrel of horse piss, the first barrel of horse piss was the turning point for me when mm-hmm. I was like, oh my goodness gracious, I'm in. Mm-hmm. This is nuts. Uh, but but all the same. Yeah, you when know I, what it takes to get Craig involved in something. <laughs> barrel of horse piss. But when I got to that scene with their deaths, I was really, I was, I was a little broken up. How did you guys feel about it? Uh, I wasn't super attached to those characters per se. I was pretty surprised that it, actually went down that way though yeah. uh i was not expecting them to i wasn't expecting them to walk in and see the sense of twins toast and uh that was i don't know just a really big surprise it was a red maybe, wedding level maybe it like, hit me so hard because it wasn't such a surprise as they were on their way back i'm like oh no oh no oh no yeah i mean there was a little bit of that but i i didn't think that he would actually do it to do it that you know way. what i mean yeah uh you spent so much time building this crew up to then kill off half or more yeah, crew and yeah it felt very i mean i felt the same way when i was reading through game of thrones the first time where you got ned stark and anyways sure. uh because i knew going in and this is probably just because i we haven't started it until now that there's three books in the series and there's supposed to be seven so i knew going in this is a lengthy series so these characters that i'm going to get to know okay cool and now what 60 70 percent of the crew is gone <laughs> right. We're down to we're down to Locke and Jean. Yeah, right. and, well, and, and Sabatha somewhere out there. True. I I feel like so in all of the um all of the things that I read online to prepare for this episode, nobody ever talks about the physiker, the the physician who's hanging out with them at the end of this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like he really got shortchanged. He really helped him out a bunch at the end of the book. I'm like, dude, you're in the crew. Welcome. <laughs> And he's then not, nobody ever talks about I feel like about he's him. not in the crew. He's well, like he's like of the crew, but not in the crew. <laughs> yeah. He's the no, guy that they go to that's like, yeah, I'll, you know. I'll regardless, your, regardless. He's the vet that can sew them up, but he's not actually right. a doctor. Anyway, so I, I kind of, I'm like the dog I'm feeling for this yeah. guy. I'm feeling for this guy. Um, what, I, don't, I don't even know what we were talking about. Did it you was, have something well, you were going to say? We were talking about, uh, did we have a connection to the crew? Oh, sure. Yeah, died? yeah. And... Sure, emotions, whatever. Go ahead. And for me, it was uh, like I said, it was it was the surprise factor that like that you were going to kill off these characters that we've already invested in so much, so relatively early in the series. Um, but it told me at from that point on that the only people who are safe, and I put that in quotes, were Locke and John, because you always have your main like your characters that mm-hmm. are safe through your series. Yeah. And even that, like Locke is safe because he's our main point here, but John is not and yeah, there's that's... enough fear put in me from that moment to be I could see him at some point in time taking Jean away from Locke. My but I, not I, I had the same time. I had the same thought and my thought was we haven't met 
Sab Sabatha? Sabatha. Mm -hmm. Sabatha yet. As soon as we do, as soon as she's like an integral part of the story on a page by page basis, Jean is in danger mm -hmm. from that moment on. See, I had the opposite thought, but this is for later on in the book because he says something really like almost at the very end where he says, I would rather like myself die than lose you or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so I see what I see. <laughs> alert, what alert. He's yeah. going to die. Yeah. So John's either toast or I could see Locke uh, sacrificing himself. And I would actually really like to see something like that where you you kill off your main character. It would be really interesting. All right. All right. Um, all right, we're coming up on, you know, we've got about 10 minutes left, uh, so we can talk about a few more things. Um, did you guys catch, this is just a little throwaway, throwaway moment, but did you catch the tribute to the Wheel of Time? No. Nobody caught that? Uh, halfway through the book, he gets fake engaged to Nazca, or I guess real engaged, but for a real short time, mm -hmm. engaged to Nazca, and so he's having a conversation with her, and there's... This line occurs in The Lies of Locke Lamora. Nazca had folded her arms beneath her breasts so tightly that her <laughs> leather cuirass creaked. <laughs> and I was just like, you know what? All right. That's a that's a, a nice subtle gesture. <laughs> I have to assume. I have to assume that's a nod to Robert Jordan. If it's not, you need to read more Robert Jordan, Mr. Lynch. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I I took a little bit of time to read about Scott Lynch. Um, and his story of how he kind of got into this and, oh, yeah. and writing because he was bartending um, when he started writing this. Yeah. Right? And I, but he had a love for fantasy. So maybe, maybe, it, maybe that is a nod. Maybe that's just a. I kind of feel like um, if you. Maybe it's a required thing to be part of the author's guild. Like if you write a story at some point in <laughs> fantasy, you have to have a woman cross her arms under her breasts. I mean, now, yeah, yeah. now it's a requirement. Uh, yeah, at this point, I feel like if you if you say, "I love fantasy," and and thus I want to start writing it, uh, but you haven't read The Wheel of Time, it's like you, you stop, don't do anything, don't no no pen to paper yet, go read that. Okay, now start. Mm -hmm. uh, that may be a little bit overblown, a little bit unfair. The but the concept the that you're explaining is this is something you should be studying if you want to be mm -hmm. part yeah. of this there, there are you can't write about what you don't know. You need to, if you want to write fantasy, you must read Tolkien, uh, Robert Jordan, George Martin. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's a couple others that I could throw on there. Maybe Ursula Le Guin, uh, Terry Pratchett. Like there's certain ones that you have to, have to, have to read if you want to start writing fantasy. And you know, and some people will kind of scoff at that and I'm sure somebody will come along and electrify the publishing world with their own fantasy novel and it'll be like the Beatles and they're like, yeah, screw this. We are the influence or whatever. Um, but for now, that's that's not quite not quite where we're at. So yeah, you got to go do it. Um, all right. Any complaints, any things that you would say like, uh, you know, I wasn't too big on this technique or this character or whatever. You're nodding your head, Kyle. Yeah, I, I was a little bit little bit disappointed in some of the villains. Uh, I'm a big villain fan. Was always on Team Forsaken. <laughs> sure. Uh, not, I mean, I felt like they were a little bit too stereotypical, and in that sense, I mean, uh, it's so Locke. 
What's that? Snidely Whiplash. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, what I think, like when Locke is impersonating the Grey King and he goes and Kappa Barsavi uncovers that it's him and he puts him back in the barrel of piss and throws him over the waterfall. Okay, he's done. He's dead. I really hate it when villains don't, like no body, no death kind of <laughs> right. thing. Um, and there was a couple times like that where it was <laughs> like, okay, we've taken care of these guys and then they just come back. And it's like, there's a great uh, there's a great line from Chuck. If you've never watched Chuck, you must go watch Chuck. Uh, but one of the the villain, he kind of fakes his own death, and the good guys are celebrating because they think he's dead. But then the side little sidekick character, he's like, "Did you see brain matter?" Mm-hmm. They're like, "Well, no." Oh, and he's like, "Oh my gosh, have you never read a comic book? No mm-hmm. brain matter, no death." <laughs> and like, I think about that a lot. Yeah, just little subtle execution things like that where. It doesn't it doesn't ruin it for me, but it was a little bit more like, ah, we've shown that this villain is like two or three steps ahead of our of our protagonist every single time, and then we get this kind of cop out, we're just gonna toss him over the waterfall and we're done. Like yeah. I don't know. Uh same thing with uh so the very end where Locke is getting beaten, um, is it by the Falconer? And he's so the Falconer knows that they're coming, right? And he, John, or no, Locke sends him a message and says, like, we are coming. No, that's that's the Grey King. They're the Grey King. Yeah. The Grey King knows that they're coming. He says, we're coming. And then all of a sudden, it's just... And he sends everybody out. And yeah. He's like, he's it's just, mine. Yeah, it's just Locke. Yeah. And, but it's like, but we are coming. So shouldn't you be expecting John to show up at some point? And I don't know. It just seemed a little bit disconnected. Sure. Okay, so like just stupid like villains, tiny, tiny little details. That... Little, yeah, little details, little execution that that you kind of just leave up to. Like it's when you're in the movie theater and the grand reveal happens, you're like, "Oh, this is crazy!" And then you go watch it again when the when the Blu-ray comes out, or you download it and you're watching it at home, and you think and you know the ending, and you think, "Wait, why didn't he see that? Because that was clearly there." Right. And I feel like it, it's there like was... the villain had never read a comic book either. Exactly. No, but I feel like there's a little bit of a disconnect between we're setting up these villains to be really intelligent, three or four steps ahead of our protagonists at every turn, and then right when it's convenient, we take that away from them. And it makes for a hell of a story and really cool climaxes and and fun scenes, but it undercuts the credibility only slightly. No, that makes sense to me. Um, Ryan, did you have any? Yeah, I've got one that I can go through, but I can wait till you're done. I don't, um, off the top of my head, I can't think of any complaints that I haven't already mentioned. Yeah, we've talked about a few already. Um, There's something that I haven't, that I didn't really realize until until later on, Um, but our heroes in this story, they win by persisting. They win by just not dying (laughs) (laughs) last man standing i think that's literally how they win this one and but we still feel like it's a victory because they've been behind like you were talking about it like well i mean sort of at the end he says so this is winning right yeah well winning can go itself (laughs) (laughs) because that's the thing i i i realize that these characters i Usually, you know, you would expect them like, oh, yeah, we hid away the, the fortune the whole time. We ended up, that, that 40000 we hid. Um, I did actually kind of laugh when he sent the the uh, the spider 
mm-hmm. which is a part we didn't even mention at all. The whole secondary, the Duke's spider character, because that's about how much it merits mention. Um, and he sends him to go uh, dig through a, a barge. Oh, the, of, the, the, a barge of shit. That is one big pile of shit. <laughs> <laughs> and um, but. As, as someone who enjoys happy endings, I wanted them to get more, but it felt right that they got exactly, like, they win simply by not dying. By not dying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but only half of them win. And that only works, though, if they are so outmatched by the other side that that still counts as a victory. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I feel like they do. I feel like they, they do. And I didn't catch it. I didn't feel a lot of that. Um, I felt a little bit odd. Uh, Speaking of the ending, it felt a little bit weird to me that, and in the middle of the story, I was fine. You, you roll with it and it becomes unbelievably fun. And so you just Mm -hmm. go with it. But looking back, it's like the whole first half is all about this Don Salvara game. And then that just stops. Mm -hmm. It just ends because then there's the whole gray King thing and then death and destruction. And then it becomes this whole um, how do I put it? It reminds me of uh, in, in the 10th anniversary to Elantris or the 10th anniversary edition of Elantris. Uh, Sanderson talks about uh, when he was learning how to write and he just had these fun character stories, uh, but they didn't, they weren't consequential. And so then his uh, writing instructor or somebody said, the fabric of the universe needs to be in peril. And he says, as soon as I got that, into my head, my stories took off. And I kind of thought that with this one too, it's like halfway through the book, he goes, the fabric of the universe, or at least their universe needs to be in peril. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that way through the Don Salvara game. And then suddenly, you know, everything is at stake, control of the city and then the lives of all these nobles and, and you know, and Locke saves the day for the entire city. Um, so it threw me off a little bit. It was kind of, nice to see that the don salvara game wrapped into the ending at the very very end Mm -hmm. with his uh, you know going into the tower and everything uh but that threw me off just a little bit um like i said in the moment i was like i barely Mm -hmm. it barely even registered because i was so sucked into the story at that point uh but that was yeah tiny thing but uh more broadly and this is just something that i hope to see uh different uh, hope to see maybe some improvement on in the future books is uh, so his prose uh, lynch's prose is fantastic his characters are all uh very colorful very witty um and you know very well spoken but the thing is they all are Mm -hmm. all of them and so if uh, there's there's little tiny bit parts like the waiter or the servant that he screws over at the end to kind of get into whatever bank or something, um, you know, little characters like that, whatever. He just kind of lets them get screwed over. But if you have more than a couple of lines in this story, then you're a freaking verbal genius. Uh, you're incredibly witty, incredibly, you know, uh, colorfully mouthed, that sort of thing. And so all of the character characterizations that way felt uh, pretty similar to each other. I would like to see a little bit more um, uh, difference you want between to see them. More idiots, like yeah, kind of. I okay. mean, I mean, I think that's a fair point. There's, it's supposed to be a city of thieves, and you know, there's kind of this underground universe of just the city itself. 
And it's it's a little bit unbelievable that they would all have that level of education and and ability to articulate everything. Sure, much more um, than me at this point. And like, I feel so like I, I could, just stumbled through everything. Yeah, I can buy it for characters like Father Chains or Locke or some of the nobility that he's mm-hmm. interacting with. But I do think that there would be because I I feel like his dialogue is fantastic. But I do think that it is a little bit. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're one dimensional. Yeah. Uh, unvaried yeah so i think that if you had varying characters of level of um syntactic complexity (laughs) nice wow (laughs) wow nice um no anyway so it's it's a relatively relatively minor thing it's not that big a deal it's so fun to read that you don't care um people can people compare this a lot to oceans 11 like uh, it's like Ocean's Eleven meets Game of Thrones. I don't actually buy that at all, largely because of what I was saying before. Like they basically abandon the Ocean's Eleven thing, and then it becomes an episode of Twenty Four, and somebody's gonna nuke Las Vegas, and Danny Ocean is like, "Oh, I'd better stop that." Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so it's not like that, but it is kind of similar in that everybody on Danny Ocean's crew is this way. They're all mm-hmm. very witty and wonderful. Mm-hmm. Point being that even if this is the case. I didn't really care all that much because I was having so damn much fun reading it yeah. that mm-hmm. I it, that it's utterly forgivable. I so I'd I, like to see some improvement in future books, but even yeah. if it's not improved, I don't really care that much yeah, at this I, point. I would say it's definitely forgivable over the course of a book, maybe even a few books. But if it's a planned seven book series, I think that you you will need to have some diversity in there, or people will get tired of it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we'd probably better call it. We're a few minutes over an hour now. Um, any final thoughts? Uh, gosh, I feel like we've actually covered this book okay. Um, yeah, we've left yeah. out a few things like the spider or whatever. We, but, well, uh, we left out the discussion about the nuclear bomb, as you put it there, you know, with, with the spider and the Kappa Raza's, what his f- full plan is and everything. But, but I mean, like you were saying earlier, this all feels very... Um, uh, snidely Whiplash? Or was that your point, Kyle? That the villains, uh, kind of. the, the villains are 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 too regular villainy. That's kind of how I felt about the the um, scene at the end with the, the uh, carving statue things mm-hmm. that are going to blow up and st- still everybody. It's not still gentle, gentle, gentle everybody. <laughs> uh, so there's some watt peeking out. Uh-huh. Uh, my watt zipper is down. <laughs> um, what was I? Tr- what was I even talking about? Gee, many Christmas. My brain is not working well tonight. My, I guess my point is that um, with that, I don't feel like I really care to discuss it because it was so generic as a plot point that there's not a ton to talk about. So I guess I would say then my one thing about, one thing I would say about this series then based on what we've said with that, I would put this in line with um, Name of the Wind and things like that where people say that this is about the characters and not about the Story. The story itself. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. But this is the difference being this story. And oh, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get so many angry letters. Uh, so many I'm angry messages. So excited! For it's gonna be you and not me. <laughs> this story is fun to go ahead and just let be in the background. Like it's fun. You don't feel irritated that you're not getting the pieces that you want from it. If that makes sense. No, absolutely. I, if we if we go back to say the Wheel of Time comparison. Uh, well, it's not really a comparison, but just talking about Wheel of Time. By the end of that, 
book, even just the first one, you know, but definitely by the end of the series, you are so invested in these characters and their journeys and their emotions and all of this stuff that it, you take everything so personally. Mm-hmm. This is not that book. Mm-hmm. In that way, sure, I guess it is more comparable to something like Ocean's Eleven where it's like, no, I'm really just here, <clears throat> here to watch them crack wise. That's can you name it. the other members or can yours adjust Danny Ocean that you can name like? Right. Yeah. yeah. Somebody named Linus. <laughs> Brad Pitt. Little Chinese man. <laughs> this is uh, this is the extent of it, and it's similar to this one. Mm-hmm. Twins, uh, uh, insect boy, something. <laughs> so, um, okay, should we should we call it? Yeah. I feel like we've we've done this book pretty well. Uh, people were asking us if we were planning on doing two episodes. We are not. I feel like we yeah, covered one, it okay one in book. one. Yeah. So we'll do that, and then uh, I think next week. Throw what we missed on Reddit. What, yeah, yeah. If we miss something, you want to talk about it, we'll be on there. So go to the legendary three times. <laughs> the legendary dot reddit dot com, uh, and then tag forward slash you forward slash uh, storm blessed four one seven. Yep, storm blessed four one seven is Ryan. You just say his name three times, and he will uh, magically appear and talk about whatever you want to. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Next week, Red Rising Book Two with uh, Todd, Ken, and Megan, and then we will be back with Gentleman Bastard Book Two in the following episode. I don't think that there are any movies or anything else coming up that we need to cover, unless you guys really want to do the Meg. I was gonna say the Meg, man. <laughs> the Meg. You want to uh, talk about f- epic fantasy? <laughs> I saw something someone posted earlier. They were saying if Dwayne the Rock Johnson uh, fights the Giants, you know, White Gorilla and Rampage, and uh, Jason Statham fights the the Meg, they're gonna have a third place fight between the Meg and the White Gorilla from those two. <laughs> and those two will face off for a championship yes. title. It's like okay, uh, the so bracketology. Anyway, yeah. So I don't think anything is coming up that we need to cover. So uh, just plan on that for the next couple of weeks. Anyway, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, We do appreciate it. And go to thelegendarium.reddit.com for the post-episode discussion. Um, And we will see you all later.